0: Well, hello, welcome to Grace Clovis Podcast. My name is Brad Mills. I'm the pastor of Grace Clovis Presbyterian Church, and typically this feed has been reserved for sermon and devotional audio, but I thought it would be helpful to do something different today. I've received tremendous help in thinking through this coronavirus uh, chaos and talking to folks who are much more knowledgeable than I am, especially in... um, in different fields. And so I, I have one of those individuals with me today, Dr. Min Jung. He's a pediatrics physician as well as a member of our church. And uh, I've somehow convinced him to join me for an extended conversation on this topic. Um, uh, he's, he was actually here yesterday to help set up my camera. So some of you have noticed autofocus issues. Well, we hopefully have fixed that moving forward. But uh, so he's a man of many talents. <laughs> But I'm here specifically to talk to him about his opinions on COVID-19. So, Min, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit to us? Tell us your background and uh, okay. maybe
1: your training. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for having me. I've never done a podcast before. So this is me neither. A, yeah, me neither. <laughs> this is a new experience. This this, hopefully this turns out to be pretty fun. Um, so uh, I, I am from South Korea, which I think... Um, kind of helped a little bit in understanding the coronavirus um, pandemic a little better in, because I've been kind of uh, watching a little closely with all my colleagues and family members going through that about probably about a month before that about a month before we actually had it before we had it yeah okay. yeah so well some the the peak was yeah. maybe about a few weeks before so. sure Knowing that a lot of the colleagues that I have in South Korea, I went to medical school in Korea and um, finished medical school, worked in an ER for a while, um, did some public health um, centers for three years, which was a community service type of service, and did my PEDS training in Tennessee, East Mm -hmm. Tennessee State University. And now I work here in Central California. So um, having that background, I think... um, helped me uh, stay a little bit more engaged and interested in how this coronavirus is kind of progressing. Um, And like I repeatedly tell you, I'm not a specialist in infectious disease or epidemiology or anything like that. Um, Just the general pediatrics. Um, But I just had a little bit more interest, I think um, knowing that a lot of the family and colleagues are going through that. So, yeah. um, Yeah. Well, before the the lockdown, I
0: remember Mm -hmm. talking to you after church and just asking um, or, or mentioning that South Korea had a had a almost a model uh, yeah, yeah. F- response to coronavirus, and and you had said it was maybe a little too late for us to
1: take that. Yeah, approach. at that point, yeah. So, um, and I'm not, I'm not even sure if it was an ideal approach that South Korea sure. had. I think um, they might have reacted a little bit late and closing down travel into the country Mm. and they were already exposed and once they were exposed i think they did a very good job in in containing it um i think there are other countries too that have been pretty good in um containing the virus or um not allowing the uh, entry of the virus into the country um a little bit more effectively some other countries in southeast asia and, and such so but either way um yeah i think south korea so far has done a really good job of, yeah um containing the virus once it started to spread with really uh rampant testing and also tracking patients and, and things like that so and
0: the testing was something we were quite behind on yeah being capable yeah. of doing yeah. and mm-hmm. maybe still are
1: yeah probably yeah okay. i think so yeah
0: um well let's let's jump into the the next uh really the first question here was uh, just in your own assessment of the threat of the coronavirus, how, how has that changed or or as information became available, has, has your mind changed on the topic and what details uh, sort of became the most alarming to you?
1: Yeah. And I, we were talking before, so um, I was also not very concerned at first, you know, mm. it was some random virus uh, from China uh, that seemed to be very distant from here and that I was just I wasn't paying too much attention Mm -hmm. and actually Eunice my wife was more concerned about it and she was the one who told me about the the Johns Hopkins coronavirus map when Mm -hmm. it was really early before we had even I think I think even the first case in the United States she told me about the map she told me to watch it and so that's when I started to really get interested in, and started following. And and so I wasn't really, I think I was that concerned at first mm-hmm. um, uh, and because we didn't know a lot. And as time went by, I think we're having more and more information, which um, has made us get really concerned about this virus. Mm-hmm. And obviously now it's a, it's a global p- pandemic. It's locking down countries. And, you know, so the yeah. threat is obviously here. So, yeah. Were
0: there were there aspects of the of the news that uh, where you thought uh, that made you change your approach um, just in general, not necessarily in your practice, but I mean, in just uh, daily life. I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like uh, if not, I mean, I understand. Yeah. But I, just...
1: I don't think there's anyone particular like one thing that really changed like okay. the whole Whole dynamic or my paradigm, you know, sure. of how how to approach life, but um, but I do think as we get more and more information, each little piece of information makes us be more concerned about sure. how, how we go about things. For example, like the mortality rate um, has has continuously gone higher and higher, mm. and now the global mortality rate as as of today, I think, is almost at six percent. When it when it started, we thought it was about. 3%. Mm-hmm. So with all these countries in Europe whose mortality has been extremely high, mm-hmm. like UK or Spain, France, Italy, all those countries have mortality rates of above 10% right now. Wow. So uh, when we think of those things, we definitely feel like, sure, this is a legitimately dangerous disease. And also at first they were saying um, there was much less morbidity and mortality in the younger population and mm-hmm. it's mostly the 65 and older or at least 60 and older or patients with, you know, lots of medical conditions. Right. But we are still seeing a lot, um, not a lot, but definitely a significant number of, um, younger adults or healthy adults, um, mm-hmm. healthy medical professionals, healthcare workers that are um, having a very severe course of the illness and also passing away. So, um, so that also has made us, you know, be more careful.
0: Now, on the on the flip side of that is is the mortality rate higher because of the lack of testing? You know, like, for instance, if yeah. we actually knew how many people <laughs> yeah. had COVID nineteen, yeah. so wouldn't it drop?
1: Yeah, so that's so that's the tricky part, right. I think, because we don't know we don't have enough information, um, and we don't have enough information in terms of uh, the true number of cases, which mm-hmm. is obvious, um, cause we're not testing every single patient. Right. Um, so that probably could, um, drive the mortality rate higher because now your denominator is smaller, but at the same time, we also don't know how many people have passed away that actually had COVID-19, right? right. So which would increase the numerator then that. So all the, all the numbers is, you know, is a little confusing. We just mm-hmm. have to take with, uh, with the, take it with a grain of salt. Mm. knowing that it's not a perfect number uh, but it is an official statistic but also understanding that considering it's probably there's probably more cases and there's probably more deaths too right yeah because there have been reports of like I think it was in Spain where a nursing home was abandoned by the staff once some of the older um, residents got sick Mm -hmm. because they were concerned of COVID-19 and later they found the uh, at the abandoned nursing home with a lot of dead um, elderly patients there Mm -hmm. and it was Probably COVID 19, but once patients do pass away, we don't really test them. So, hmm. th- I don't know if that was included in the number, I, I don't have all that information, but you know, so yeah. And
0: I know China's numbers are definitely, Pro- yeah, or yeah. maybe not definitely, but I think that most definitely. likely is <laughs> yes, most under-reported likely yeah. and, so I think um, there's
1: two parts to that too. I think there's probably um, under reporting. Um, I think there's I I think there's that aspect. Well, they even admitted that yeah. they
0: weren't tracking certain yes. things like asymptomatic
1: cases. Exactly,
0: and so, and and apparently they were defining asymptomatic by whether we used a ventilator on them.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't, something. I don't crazy. know the specifics yeah. of that. So I think there is definite. I I feel like there's probably some intentional underreporting. But then there's also the aspect of early on when there was a huge outbreak. Um, a lot of patients had an infection, and a lot of patients. Uh, died without even adequate testing at the time. Hmm. and you know we probably shouldn't believe all the you know all the stuff that's on social media, or whatever but what um, <laughs> yeah. so, but there have been you know posts or videos that have um, that were on the internet where people were just you know uh, passing out in the streets in China early on in Wuhan um, when this right. outbreak was starting and a lot of people were dying in their homes or, you know, never got medical care before they passed away. So that, that's probably not even intentionally underreported. Sure, that's, right. you know, so there's just so many just variables. Different protocol. Yeah. Just so many variables. Um, so, you know, that's probably playing a big part too. So, yeah.
0: <clears throat> okay. Well then based on, on just some of that background, do you agree that in the way we've handled it since maybe we were a little behind the curve on testing and, you know, but, but since taking it seriously, um, you know, without getting political here, (laughs) uh, do you, do you agree that the nation and even our state has taken, um, appropriate measures to address the pandemic? Do you think, specifically like the social distancing and the lockdown measures, are they either too restrictive or too loose?
1: Yeah. I, I, um, so I, I think it's a very, very complicated issue, um, uh, to tackle. And that's, that's probably why they, uh, you need a, uh, a team of a, a task force of many different experts, um, trying to come up with the plan would be that is, that is appropriate. Um, and I think the big, the big thing with this COVID nineteen is just a lack of information. We no nobody really knows exactly how this is going to play out. Sure. Um. So it's hard to say whether this is too excessive or too little or were we too late or. Yeah. I think it's it's um, uh, um. It's hard to say. But having said that, um, I do think, uh, the measures we're taking, are, uh, not not excessive at least Um, because uh, um, there's just so many variables that we need to look at. And there's what, what we do with uh, medicine. If we want to simplify, simplify things is we look at what happened in the past or how this has, how certain things or similar things have played in the past. Yeah. And we use that data to uh, make, come up with a plan and we execute that plan. For example, like if we think of, um, Using antibiotics for an ear infection, we we know that statistically, when we use amoxicillin for ear infection, it, it is ninety percent probably effective. And mm. knowing that data, now we plan uh, plan for the future. Sure. The problem with things like COVID nineteen is we don't have a past to right. look at. So all right. we all we can do is uh, make predictions based on similar type of um, mm. uh, pandemics in the past. And um, people sometimes bring up. Uh, why don't we do this for this type of right. uh, epidemic in the past? like we had We had was us sp- down for swine flu. Yeah, yeah. Swine, what about swine flu? or there's always stuff in the news about Ebola or there was this scare about SARS or things mm-hmm. like that. So when we look at when we kind of look back at those examples, um, Covid nineteen definitely um, seems a lot more threatening than the swine flu, hmm. at least so far, because I did a little bit of uh, reading recently. Um, so the CDC, the last global pandemic was the swine flu, which was from 2009 to 2010. Okay. And the CDC, um, estimates that they had about, um, 60 million cases in the U S um, during that one year span. Mm -hmm. And there were about 12,000 deaths in the U S okay. So, um, and worldwide about 150,000 to 600,000 deaths. Now we look at COVID-19 and that was, that's on the low
0: end of that, right? What on I mean, the swine flu, I thought I thought the numbers I read on swine flu was anywhere between 150,000 to up to half a million. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah, yeah. Deaths. Yeah. Deaths, swine flu.
1: Yeah. yeah. So CDC's estimate was 150,000 to 600,000. Oh, worldwide. It, it, yeah. Okay. So that's the kind of range we're talking about with the swine flu global pandemic, which okay. lasted about a year. Now we look at covid-19. Which we still don't know exactly when, when the it. first uh, when the first index case was in China. Yeah. They've, they've said it was January and then they said it was December. I think now they're saying maybe November. It was, right. It's just not clear. But um, when it started to spread to the rest of the world was kind of somewhere around February. Um, so we're probably about two months in. Sure. And we have already um, today, um, I was looking earlier, and the global death rate is... There, is already at a hundred thousand, mm-hmm. um, and the deaths in the that's, U.S.
0: That's reported from China too. Under yeah, right? yeah So yeah.
1: we assume it could be up to
0: 130, 140 Yeah, 000. yeah. I mean, it's, we won't plus. even know exactly. Right, yeah, and
1: right. and even the even in Italy and Spain and France where there's just a huge um, uh, rate rising cases and deaths. I'm sure there's a few more deaths than sure. what's reported there too. So what is it at that? Yeah, good.
0: What is it in the U.S.?
1: So the U.S. The today. Um, currently total deaths is um, 17,927 according to the worldometer. So that's already pretty much 18,000. And we have been recording roughly 2,000 deaths per day for the last three days um, or maybe even a little longer. So the death rates are now peaking in some states like New York and New Jersey. So we're already at 18,000, which is much higher than what the swine flu was in a whole year. And we are Mm. pretty much maybe about a month. A little more than a month into it, um, and this is with all the measures that we're taking because the mitigation process of Had social distancing—it's it it probably be worse. it'll probably be much worse. That is our guess. So, um, so yeah, in a way, it's definitely more threatening than the swine flu. It's killed more people in in a month and a half than swine flu did in a whole year. Yeah. Um, with all the measures that we're taking, sure, um, and the mortality rate. As as well in the U.S. it's not creeping towards four percent. It started out much lower, um, and the swine flu mortality rate was less than one percent. So, and it's more contagious as well. the The reproductive number, which is how many people that infected person is going to infect, sure. um, is also presumably higher than the influenza virus. So, if you add up, it's more contagious and mm-hmm. it's more deadly, um, and it is it is here. It's not. Um, like another epidemic, like SARS, which was only in Asia, less right. than ten thousand cases, or MERS, which was much more deadly, but it was isolated not in the Middle East, and you know, yeah. and Ebola, which was way more deadly but much less contagious and was contained in Africa. All those epidemics lasted roughly about a year to eighteen months. Mm. So uh, we could expect that this is going to be a prolonged process. Probably not maintaining this rate of infection and rate mm-hmm. of mortality but it's going to be here for a while. Um, so having said all of that, definitely it is, it is something to be concerned about. know. Yeah. Okay. At
0: what point do we consider the other concerns, right? Especially the economic yeah. recession factor. I mean, that's gotta yeah. be considered, even though I know neither of us are, are experts on the economy <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so, but I mean, I think it's helpful to consider your, uh, uh, you know, how a doctor thinks about the economy, and and, and in fact, it, it, considering the unemployment rate soared, sure. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we were at, uh, I think there were almost seven million people filed just last week mm-hmm. yeah. for unemployment, yeah, and the numbers are up in 70 million since Mm -hmm. uh, it's something crazy, but there are some obvious concerns to consider based on unemployment, uh, the increase in depression, alcohol abuse, drug use, um, suicide rates. You know, you can go on and on about the additional, the ramifications of the economy um, collapsing Uh because of this, which will in fact also, swell our hospitals with additional sure. cases yeah. right so yeah. mm-hmm. I, I guess I just I could go on
1: but yeah I don't know um quite honestly like I said I'm not an expert in infectious sure. diseases and I'm much less of an expert in finance <laughs> economy or whatever but um, I I think there I I personally think there's probably two aspects to that um, that we want to consider um, one is just an, in a purely balancing, um money uh, uh e- economy and life um what what do we value more and how much is is um how how, how valuable of of each individual life can we hmm. can we put a price can we put a price tag on on right. a person's life i don't, i don't know but if we had to and i kind of did this um little calculation because i like numbers um uh last night when i was thinking about this um so So far, I think, um, our government has, uh, used the $2 trillion, um, economy, uh, stimulus Stimulus pack. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sure the, the economic burden of this coronavirus is way more than $2 trillion. But,
0: and that in (laughs) itself has increased the stock market. Yeah. So the the response (laughs) from the economists Mm -hmm. it would seem would be positive to that.
1: Yeah. But just, just, um, just hypothesizing that, um, the cost of this mm. lockdown is right. let's say 2 trillion dollars for now. Okay. Um and if that maybe helped save 200,000 potential lives, let's just hypothesize considering how many deaths we already have and what could have happened if we didn't do anything. Right. Um so and that's just very all these are very random numbers just for my okay. just for my random sure. exercise. So if we had to if we had to use 2 trillion dollars for to save 200,000 lives that would that would put a price tag of about $10 million per life, right? mm. Is one life worth $10 million? Um, if I had a family member who I knew could be saved, had we given up $10 million, would that be worth it? Mm. Now, it, if we look at it on a country scale, we have roughly 330 million people in, in the United States. If we had to round it up just to make the math easier, if there was 400 million people living here, that would take on $2 trillion burden to save 200,000 lives that kind of comes up to each person taking on about $5,000 burden mm-hmm. to save 200,000 other lives. If we share the load equally. Right? Sure. And which never happens. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. And this is just, just, no, to, just helpful. a mindful that's exercise helpful. to just at least put things um, in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so then, then for each person, um, it kind of, uh, you know, it, it, the math kind of works out in a way, um, and that at least we're we're weighing in a vacuum um, how much impact economy life how mm. how valuable are these things I think that's just a, that's just in a pure very vague and simplistic calculation right yeah but like you said there are other factors too like if we didn't do anything would we save that to two trillion dollars would would people be still would our country still be flourishing mm-hmm. economically with all the coronavirus going on, had we not shut down anything, right. that's, that's that's the other big question. What what is the alternative? Will we just lose lives but go on with our lives? I think the economy will still take a big hit mm-hmm. whether we shut down or not, um, because people would be very careful in how they do business, how they go about doing things. That's true. Um, yeah. So it's not um, just by shutting it down. It's not yeah. like the alternative was still flourishing. Um, we're, we're weighing right. two realistic alternatives. And um, so that's that's a I think that's a more realistic view of just by, you know, um, we can't just view that, you know, this economic burden we're taking on is because of the shutdown. We probably would have had a similar, uh, pro- maybe a little less severe, but a, a pretty bad um, economic outcome, even mm-hmm. without a shutdown anyway. Uh, by but by locking down, I do think we We've could minimized. at least yeah, minimize lives um, that we lost. Uh,
0: yeah. So um, and maybe a subset <laughs> of this question is the idea that there was, you know, the original projections were a little, were really high, right? 2.2 <laughs> <laughs> 2 million people in America dying yeah. from this. Um, that was revised down to 200,000 mm-hmm. recently, uh, maybe even as late as last week. And then as I heard recently, mm-hmm. maybe even yesterday, Fauci said something. Dr. Fauci said something about the projection dropping below 70, like around 60,000. Yeah, something like that. So of course, hindsight, you're going to have one group of uh, the population saying, look, this was way overblown. We Mm should have never done anything. This is obviously nothing worse than the flu. And then you've got the other side saying, Thank goodness we preserved so many lives yeah. by locking us down, yeah. and 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 it wasn't as bad. But obviously, I do think some of the research, and um, maybe this this isn't gonna show that I wear foil hats. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but yeah. some some of the research may indicate that there was some. Presence of COVID nineteen earlier on, yeah, uh, yeah. maybe as as early as uh, fall of last year uh-huh. in California, <laughs> and so if you have cases where the the spread of the virus where it was asymptomatic, um, it it would seem to indicate that the threat to life is much less than yeah. than the early projections. Yeah uh, we're indicating. So I know, um, and I, and I, we've talked about this cause I mentioned this to you already, but there's the Stanford medicine yeah. research uh-huh. group that's, that's looking into this. And I, in fact, I think today and tomorrow they're doing a study that coincides with this in mm-hmm. LA, Los mm-hmm. Angeles yeah. County. So 3,200 people yeah. were mm-hmm. tested in San Francisco mm-hmm. with Stanford. And then another thousand are being tested today and tomorrow to basically determine, um, uh, herd immunity yeah, yeah, whether or not California <laughs> potentially has some herd immunity, which is why our numbers are so much lower than mm-hmm. than projections I mean something like 14 times lower than New mm-hmm. York mm-hmm. Um, and maybe those numbers are, are off because that was mm-hmm. from a few days ago but but e- either way to me when I when I hear that mm-hmm. and I'm a fan of Victor Davis Hansen mm-hmm. and he was the one that initially started talking about this mm-hmm. uh, over a week ago. Uh, as a hypothesis, as mm-hmm. a theory, um, and then it's backed up now by some even a f- uh, some experts at, mm-hmm. at Stanford. So, to it's not backed up, but it's a it's it's, it's they're, exploring it. yeah. exactly. uh-huh. they're exploring it exactly. They're exploring it, and they'll know in a few weeks the results of this. Um, so, what are your thoughts on
1: that? Yeah. So you you told me about this study, and sure. So, um, and I did. I tried to look up a little bit of information on that. I think. Um, the details of the study wasn't really fully um, out there to really no, look into. Yeah. And it's um, so the information that's out there about the study is kind of uh, a little bit vague. Sure. Um, so I wasn't sure what to really make of the study. Um, you have to know
0: the sites to go to. No, I'm kidding.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly conspiracy the theorists, yeah. we know where <laughs> to find our yeah. yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure what to think of the study um, because uh, primarily I'm, I, I don't know exactly from the person who's conducting the study what their what their exact hypothesis is and what their reasoning specific reasoning to go about proving that um, and and I keep saying I'm I'm not an expert in this yeah. type of uh, like high high level you know research and investigation but um, I do I I still do kind of uh, find find it hard to believe um, yeah. that there would have been and. An asymptomatic spread of COVID nineteen in California only. Um, you think it would
0: have been there would have been more deaths that we saw? There would have been at, at least more
1: more morbidity before. or you know, um, if if what the researchers are um, theorizing is um, the virus entering California through travelers from China um, and having a wide um, asymptomatic spread um, first. I don't think um, Chinese tourists only travel to California I think there is a plenty plenty of um, travel um, tourist traffic in New York City um, from China as well mm-hmm. and European countries Italy Spain France those are very highly traveled countries yeah so to think if if the theory is that it's from travelers from China mm-hmm. um, I think it's hard to believe that California would be the only area that has a wide yeah herd immunity yeah. Um, which uh, which is hard to believe. The other part we is, apparently don't like
0: Italy. Yeah. Right, they yeah. missed the boat.
1: Yeah. So I don't, I don't know um, about that. Um, and even with the widespread um, asymptomatic spread it would be pretty unlikely with all the information that we have pretty much most countries that COVID-19 has now entered and started to spread. We've seen um, exponential increase in mortality rates and mm-hmm. um, high hospital burdens. Um, so, Like, as you already know, even a couple of weeks ago, Italy was uh, the doctors in Italy had to decide which patient to intubate Mm -hmm. and ventilate uh, to put on a ventilator and which person to just, you know, let pass away based on their their chance of survival on a ventilator. So that's the type of hospital burden we're talking about, not just people lining up outside it's people actually dying there because they couldn't get the right medical equipment. So, um if it had, if it had entered California or um, early fall last year um, and had a wide spread causing herd immunity, I, I would, um, I would tend to lean on the side of believing that they would have been a a, a huge uh, epidemic um, yeah. or at least a a big surge in some sort of unknown type of illness. I think they mentioned there was a very early. Um, uh, surge in flu cases in that time frame which i would assume most of the patients were probably tested positive for flu to be diagnosed that way sure. um, they might have some some patients are not tested and we presume they're flu and we we diagnose them as flu based on all the symptoms and we treat them that way um, but just seeing how covid-19 has played out with uh, with the mortality rate being that high a lot of the patients that were diagnosed as flu without testing, if they were COVID-19 positive, they would have seen a a, a much higher um, severity of those illnesses at the time, and people would have been questioning. Um, okay. It's it's hard to believe it'll come in undetected. Um, sure. Yeah, because okay. it's, it's pretty different in, in the outcomes. The symptoms are similar, though. Okay. So. But we'll see. We'll see how that, well, I would, yeah. I would like to see how that, research comes out and what kind of data points they use. I think they're going to gonna
0: <clears throat> see that definitely more people were, are infected than have been, than had been yes, tested. I think that's right? definitely
1: it's... possible because they're using an antibody serology testing, which would, which they're testing for person's, um, bodies, antibodies, uh, if the person has antibodies to the COVID-19, right. um, or not. And, right. uh, we talked a little bit about like seroconversion. It's, it's a little technical, but if you have a virus, if you get infected, there's a time frame generally for like three to four weeks before your body starts to show antibodies. So, um, if, um, if they were tested positive, uh, or if they did have an infection, they would probably, um, be positive for, um, antibodies, but we won't know when that infection occurred or, um, if they were, if they have that antibody because of an infection or were there other factors, there have been some theories about, you know, children because they're exposed to different forms of coronavirus all the time. Is that why they are a little bit more immune to Mm COVID-19? And that is that why we're seeing less cases of COVID-19 in children? There's a lot of hypothesis out there and it's there because we don't know enough about it, you know?
0: So I just saw an article, um, this morning, but it was, it was, uh, released yesterday a study in Massachusetts looked at um, sewage and determined that there were something like at the point, at the point they did the study, there were under 500 cases Mm -hmm. uh, confirmed. Mm -hmm. And yet according to the sewage, which I would hate to have that job (laughs) testing, but they had something like Mm -hmm. 2,300 cases based on that. And, you know, again, I don't have any idea how they determined that, but Mm. so that's, Almost, you know, it's over four times the amount of confirmed cases are in that area or in that region.
1: I don't know. I don't know what you mean by that testing. But when you mention sewage, there is a uh, there is a concern of um, so the transmission. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about respiratory droplet transmission is Mm -hmm. the primary way that we're being infected. So if someone coughs or sneezes, the respiratory Mm -hmm. droplet that you sneeze out or cough out would land somewhere or on your hand or whatever surface and another person touches that, um, that droplet that contains the virus. And by touching their face, eye, nose, mouth, mucous membrane is now infecting themselves. That's kind of the, that's, that's pretty much how we're seeing, um, respiratory type of illnesses spread. Okay. There's also a, a, I think, um, there's some evidence out there that there's some fecal oral transmission, which is, uh, you shed virus through your, um, your uh, fecum and it transfers orally that way, which is similar to a lot of um, stomach bugs. Um, so stomach bugs transmit that way, like rotavirus or things like that. Okay. So when you think of that, and they say that the fecal the fecal component, there's a high, there's a longer lasting viral shedding than the respiratory droplets. So you even though you don't infect anyone with your cough anymore, you could be still infectious in your stools wow. for a longer period. So there's like. Um, I keep going back to we don't have enough information. Yeah, right. And uh, it's still a lot of unknowns. And there's also another study about BCG vaccinations. Um, I think it it was published somewhere in one of the uh, countries in Southeast Asia. And I didn't get a chance to look into the study, but people were talking about how some of the countries that are doing BCG vaccine, which is a tuberculosis vaccine. So if you're doing those vaccines... Somehow that might have an effect on lower cases because a lot of the countries that have BCG vaccines are not taking a big of a hit compared to the countries that aren't doing BCG vaccines like the European countries and the US and things Mm. like that. So there's just so many factors that could play into how this virus is affecting large communities and what is determining what variables are playing into their contagiousness and their severity, all of that. So, you know, mm. the herd immunity theory, I think it could be possible, but I personally don't Unlikely. think it's likely. Yeah. Um, and there's many, many other theories why certain areas are not as severe as other areas. But I think that's a little too technical for us. And even for myself, I you know, there's just so many studies and there are high higher level science stuff that. You know, sure. It's hard well, for me too. <laughs> so. it's,
0: it's a little more <laughs> reputable than the theory that the military is placing these um, yeah, you know, yeah. These cell towers <laughs> in order to <laughs> lock us down more for permanently. <laughs> yeah. Little bit crazy some of the stuff <laughs> that I've been reading, but um, okay. So I just wanted to maybe start to near towards some closure toward this in, in this interview, but get real practical. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you have any other thoughts or things that you want to discuss, uh, feel free. But the idea here was, uh, you know, we, we see instruction and video after video is shared online about how to wash your hands, how to, how to like keep your hands off your face, how to um, bleach down everything that you buy in the grocery store. Uh, Are we, where where are we on the spectrum of, you know, doing nothing? Don't Mm. worry about mass or to the, I, you know, like, everyone buying inflatable
1: tubes and walking around sure. in these bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. I, to be honest, I don't know the exact answer to that. Yeah. Um, I think it it does depend on, it does depend a lot on the comfort level of each individual. If they, if they feel like this is too much of a burden, then you can't, but I, the general rule I think should be, uh, you'd rather be safer than sorry. Um, so taking whatever measures that you feel comfortable with, and maybe the
0: more um, immune, you know, the immune compromised that you are as an individual, the more sure, yeah. serious. you defi- Yeah. That's definitely.
1: Yeah. That's definitely the case. So you know, the elderly population, um, the seniors above, you know, sixty-five years of age, or even if you're younger than sixty-five, but you have another uh, comorbidity like high blood sure. pressures or cholesterol, obesity, or any in you know, diabetes, any of those things, you probably want to be a little more careful. Not because you're more likely to get the infection, but you're more likely to be sicker if you get the infection. If you get it. Yeah. So So the bleaching (laughs) helps. I don't know about the bleaching, (laughs) but like Clorox wipes and Lysol, things like that does really help um, clean, clean the virus um, off of surfaces. Okay. I was, um, and I'm just like, you. I've been reading and watching a lot of videos or um, uh, information about newer research or recommendation on COVID-19, Um, I guess I might be watching a little bit more technical stuff, but it's pretty much similar things. Um, And I think there was um, it wasn't with the COVID-19, but previously um, some some group um, at a university was doing a study on how can we uh, minimize viral spreading? Um, And Mm -hmm. I think they took a clinic and they did some studies on um, taking um, all the surfaces from the clinic um, and seeing how much. Uh, how much viral load there were on certain surfaces, doorknobs and um, countertops and um, Mm. faucets and all those things. Um, And they left it alone, told everybody to just wash your hands as often as you can and wipe down um, the surfaces when you can. And they would would measure um, the viral load at the end of the clinic day. Mm -hmm. And they would also test, well, before they did that, they tested how much there was a difference between the morning and afternoon without any interventions. And they tested how much virus there was after doing intervention, and the decrease in viral loading on different surfaces was exponentially lower with um, just basic hand washing and wiping down surfaces. And wow. but it, without that, they found there was tons of viruses and bacteria on on doorknobs that were clean in the morning, but wow. people were touching and you yeah. know. Now, I think, some, I think there was some study about people touch their face how many times per minute or, or I don't know um, what that measure was, but we really do touch our face a lot and yes. we lick our fingers or, put, you know, rub our eyes, which are all very fragile mucous membranes, so... Yeah. So like I've seen
0: uh, one video was talking about how the gloves are not necessarily helpful unless you're washing your hands all the time with your gloves on. Exactly. Yeah. Touch your hand. You're going to touch your phone.
1: Exactly. It's not your hand that's producing the virus. Right. Right. You're, You're touching something that has the virus and you're transferring it somewhere else. So if you're wearing your gloves all the time. It's basically functioning just like your hand. <laughs> so, sure, sure. so, But having said that, I do think there is a lot of benefit in wiping down things, washing your hands. Obviously, it's been talked about yeah, um, yeah. at length. I think everybody's probably washing their hands more than they did in the past. But even wiping down surfaces or things that are um, delivered to your house, maybe just giving them an extra wipe or hmm. um, things that you get off the grocery stores um, from the shelves. They're probably not you're not worried about the virus landing on it from something that's manufactured in China and coming all the way here at this point. Statistically, okay. we have four times more viruses here than than China now. Well, whether you believe the numbers or not, but either way, we're not worried about that, but we're worried about the last person that touched that box, right? And if that was there, I think some studies are showing that viruses are able to live on certain types of surfaces like plastic and metal for up to three days, and cardboard for maybe 24 hours, things like that wow. so um, if a delivery person um, was dropping something off and they had an infection and they just coughed on their hand yeah, right before right. they touched your box and they dropped it off and an hour later you're kidding that box then you know there there's going to be some risk involved with that now do you want to cause a panic attack and anxiety over every little box that comes in you probably don't want to and like i said i think it, it is going to Inevitably, it's going to be about your comfort level and how. So maybe
0: if you have a dog, you let your dog fetch your yeah. mail. You
1: know. Well, there was a tiger that got COVID 19 oh. in the Bronx Zoo. Oh, they're out. I, I don't know why they even tested. This, but... drones. Yeah. More drones. Yeah. Well, um,
0: if. Okay, so I got two more questions, but one, uh, maybe the most practical, is if someone does think that they have the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. They're showing some symptoms. Maybe they've got a, a developing fever, cough, yeah. something like that, respiratory <laughs> issues. Is there just some basic over-the-counter medication they should consider taking, uh, some precautionary measures they can do at home? Uh, at what point do they contact, yeah. you know, a professional for attention, yeah. a medical so professional?
1: First, I I, I hope that um, everyone has some sort of an established doctor that they can regularly communicate with if they need to. Um, I think that's, uh, first and foremost, I think that's very helpful that when you have symptoms or you just have any questions about what you're going through, at least you might be able to call uh, a doctor to, you know. So call early. Yeah, calling early would probably be helpful. Um, Now, if if that's not available, I think um, keeping in mind so far what we know, the main three symptoms for COVID-19 is um, fever. Uh, dry coughs, and shortness of breath. Okay. Um, shortness of breath is one of the key things that we see in patients that are becoming more and more severe. And that's that's the primary driving force behind all the severity and mortality uh, associated with it. So, um, so those are the three main symptoms that you're going to feel. Now, if you have fever and cough, it could be anything else too, right? You mm-hmm. could just have uh, strep throat generally doesn't cause cough, for the most part, but things like just influenza virus or any regular coronavirus or any other viruses that are out there, rhinovirus, androvirus, there's many different viruses that cause similar symptoms. Sure. Um, and even if it is COVID-19, if you're not in that 20% of the, po- the patients that have COVID-19 that are going to be severe, 80% of the patients, at least so far that we know, the statistically, they're not having severe symptoms and you probably don't need to be in a hospital or taking right. any excessive measures anyway. So, you know, if, if you, if you aren't able to communicate directly with your doctor at, at the time of feeling some symptoms, it could be fine. Just monitoring your own symptoms at home and taking, you know, Tylenol for fevers and, um, uh, getting good hydration, sleeping a lot and hopefully, um, quarantine yourself from the rest of the family just to be safe. Mm. Um, and maybe using a separate room, um, While you're feeling sick, um, I think those would be some reasonable measures um, that you can take. But if you definitely start to feel a little bit of uh, a burden to breathe, uh, taking in breath and breathing out and feeling like uh, your breathing is becoming a little labored and you feel a little shorter breath for not doing much uh, without even exercising, things like that, then you probably should... Uh, seek medical attention at that point, yeah.
0: What about just a basic over the, um, you know, Tylenol, mm-hmm. ibuprofen, <clears throat> fever reducing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
1: so that's those are all what we would call supportive therapy. Okay. So um, most viruses, even COVID-19, so far all we can do is supportive therapy, which is uh, there's nothing that's going to target and kill the virus. Right. Um, which is like most other viruses. Okay. Um, but so what we do is we support your body, Right. as your body is fighting off the virus. Hopefully it does, right? So uh, Tylenol and ibuprofen um, is what's recommended for fevers and that's just going to bring your fever down and help you feel a little better um, for four to six hours. You haven't it. heard
0: of any difference between the two, like one being better than the so other there's a lot COVID.
1: of COVID? Um, so uh, there's a lot of um, conversation in the medical field about um, potential um, uh, downside of using um, ibuprofen as opposed okay. to Tylenol, uh, because of the way it acts um, to reduce the fever, there has been some theories um, about um, the we call them NSAIDs, um, non sterile anti-inflammatory drugs. Those could potentially worsen the course of um, COVID nineteen. Um, okay. Hasn't been, I don't think it has been uh, confirmed. Confirmed, but there is a lot of concern and suspicion of it. Uh, mm-hmm. So we probably would are on the side of caution and probably stick with Tylenol if you okay. can. Um, so that's 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 what i would yeah more information is available yeah yeah
0: yeah. okay well that's helpful Mm -hmm. lastly at least on my uh from (laughs) the that i've thought through here is it as you're thinking about um just the impact this has on your own practice i know we've got friends that are um doctors and Mm -hmm. and a lot of their physicians just haven't even come in for regular checkups Mm -hmm. right they've Mm -hmm. been able to do it. Uh, on the phone yeah. or maybe uh-huh. through a video conference, mm-hmm. do you think this is going to change the way we practice medicine moving forward, um, at those levels of kind of the doctor patient relationship?
1: Yeah. So I think there's, um, there's some hope that this would bring about some sort of a positive change mm-hmm. in how we, as the, just the general population utilize the healthcare system, um, yeah and also as uh, physicians or uh, nurse practitioners or physician assistants as uh, in terms of how we provide our healthcare care too because um, as we know there's a lot of uh, medical issues that um, patients come in with that probably don't need to be seen right um, and I think there, hopefully with this I think there's a generally a growing understanding of what we could do at home and just um, like i mentioned earlier the supportive management um, supportive therapies just if we know that this is not a serious illness and we're just having fevers and we're not feeling good we could probably just stay home and hydrate and take tylenol and um, let it run its course sure. um, and i think that could hopefully have some impact uh, this could hopefully have some impact on how we utilize the healthcare system and how we also communicate with doctors there's a, a much higher usage of telehealth medicine now. Um, so a right. lot of practices are transitioning to a lot of telehealth. So they're video conferencing with the patients at home um, and going over Even some of the doing some
0: pre-research before you have a patient come in, right? So, you, I mean, you can get some, some, you can think through some issues without having to have an in-person meeting
1: yeah yeah and um and a lot of the a lot of the times you could probably just make um make recommendations without even having the patient come in right so you could talk to them and make sure just at least by watching how they're breathing and um how they look general appearance is one of the physical exams what we do we we say oh it's an ill-appearing patient or well-appearing patient Um, and that gives a lot of clues too yeah um so Telehealth medicine, I think, is um, is um, is becoming a major part of how we practice medicine, and and I think it can be useful if if utilized in the right way, um, minimizing patients having to um, drive all the way to the to the office and sitting in the waiting room next to another person who's coughing and having fevers, um, and potentially contracting something else that is much worse what they, than what they already had. So um, I think those elements, I think. This is this could be a good opportunity where things are being tested out and being confirmed as pretty useful. Yeah. Um, and minimizing excessive use of healthcare or um over over testing and things like that. I think mm. it's, um, when it's all said and done, I think um we 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 would have learned a lot about um, what we probably didn't need to do and what we could do differently in the future, you know. That's good. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well just in in closing what is the um what's kind of your assessment as as people have come into your office i mean you're dealing with kids but obviously fearful parents and and yeah. has there been in the you know, what's just your general
1: yeah so um like i think i've been i kind of repeated this a lot about that there's still so much that we don't know um and um and even when when you asked me to talk about this together on the on this podcast and I I took a little bit more time to kind of think about some of the issues or the questions that you wanted to talk about and even looking into more and more stuff there's still so much that we don't know yeah. the, the more we know the more we realize we don't know I thought know. you were going to solve this yeah, no. what not me not me of all Come people no. our <laughs> podcast has such reach yeah. I was planning on sending this to Donald Trump and... yeah. Yeah. so I I what I've, what I've come to realize um, and uh, also seeing a lot of the patients um, or just seeing how people in general respond to this pandemic, mm-hmm. I think um, there's the the unknown part of it. Yeah. The, the unknown part is the most anxiety provoking and that's what's probably driving us the most. And I think maybe even the fact that we're doing this kind of a podcast um, to help inform a little bit more people right. is driven by the fact that um, the not knowing is driving my anxiety. And I want to know a little bit more. I want to understand a little bit more. How long is this going to last? How long is this lockdown going to last? Am I going to get the disease? Does my neighbor have it? How do I even know? What do I do? Yeah. Like, there's just so many questions. And uh, I think the unknown is the the biggest part that's causing a lot of anxiety sure. um, and you mentioned briefly, but um, increase in alcohol use or, you know, panic mm. attacks, depression. And I don't think it's the fact that there is a pandemic that's causing, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of that too, but not that the fact that, that it is COVID-19 that's killing people, but also the fact that we just, just not knowing about it, right. um, not knowing when it will end and not, not knowing mm. how many people are going to end up dying. And, and when can we go back to work and all these questions is probably causing more anxiety than the disease itself and um, that's why i want to also ask you as a pastor like how like what what are your thoughts on how this is impacting uh, just the just our just our general Mm. population and how you know what are the spiritual impacts like what 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 is your uh, take and what is your recommendations yeah. on, you know, and our churches and meeting on right. regularly, we just seen your face on TV once, once a week for services. I mean, th- there's a huge spiritual impact too, you know, for sure. Uh, yeah. So I was kind of curious to know that too.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think um, just in initially the, this is where our theology really, really shines, mm-hmm. right? If you're uh, as reformed, believers we have a high confidence in God's sovereignty Mm. over all things and so when we face uncertainties we we know that this is not a surprise to God Mm -hmm. he has he has things under control he is in fact working out all things for his glory and for our good um and so there's some comfort in that for the believer obviously Mm -hmm. even in the midst of uncertainties Mm -hmm. um even in the midst of sorrow and temptation and trials on every side, we can we can open God's word. We can remind ourselves of His promises. We can go to Him in prayer. You know, I, I did a video um, a couple weeks ago now. I think on on a, on what do we do if we're anxious? Mm-hmm. And the Bible yeah. says, "Do not be anxious." Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a way to uh, to allow our anxiety. Uh, to to simply compound upon itself and and to uh you know when we we dwell upon those things and uh, it only makes our situation worse whereas if we cast our cares upon the lord knowing that he cares for us knowing mm-hmm. that he is in control then um, i think that's you know step one is to recognize right that you're you may be too focused on these things circumstances Mm. and, and allowing the circumstances to determine your level of comfort, Mm. right? Rather than trusting in God. And so you're Mm. really being driven and motivated by fear, um, rather than, than by, um, trust. By, mm-hmm. by faith. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think the first thing is, is uh, you, know, you cast those cares upon the Lord in, in prayer. But mm-hmm. then there is also this need to begin to fill our minds with mm-hmm. something that is yeah. hopeful. Mm-hmm. Right? And that <clears throat> again, takes us to God's word. We, we now read his word. We fill our minds with, with, um, with his truth and, and it begins to replace some of those fears. I'm not saying that that we we won't have any uncertainty moving forward mm-hmm. if we just read our Bible every day. Sure. You know, check that off and yeah, you're, you're sure. good. Yeah. But I think the i <laughs> the the idea is you're not going to stop thinking about <laughs> your fears of COVID 19 by mm-hmm. saying stop worrying about it. Stop worrying about it. Right. We've yeah. got to actually change our routine. We've mm-hmm. got to change what it is that we're spending time on. And if it's mm-hmm. just scrolling through Facebook feeds mm-hmm. or Twitter or Uh, news reports, Mm -hmm. then what are you filling your mind with? Mm -hmm. Things that are obviously raising the level of anxiety Mm -hmm. in your, in your mind. So you've got to, you've got to get a routine where you are once again, reminding yourselves of God, uh, of God's promise, resting in that. And then I think there is even a third component to dealing with anxiety that is outward, right? It's taking your, your, Anxious thoughts and becoming concerned for mm-hmm. others in a positive way. In fact, the same word is used in the Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually a negative thing, anxiety, but there's a few cases where it's used positively um, in terms of caring for others, Right, mm-hmm. Paul's concern for, this, for the church was a good thing. And mm-hmm. it's the same word concern there. We interp- we translate it concern mm-hmm. because we want to emphasize the, the fact positive, that he's yeah. using it in a mm-hmm. positive context. Mm-hmm. It's not anxiety mm-hmm. in the same sense that we think of it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I I, think there's that component of it. If you actually turn your thoughts towards your neighbor mm-hmm. and show them love and care and you, you put their interest above your own, mm-hmm. it actually has that reciprocating effect of reducing your own anxiety. Mm-hmm. Your... your mm-hmm you're putting that burden on the Lord. You're Mm -hmm. casting that care and that burden upon the Lord. You're correcting your own anxieties by trusting in his promises. Mm -hmm. And then you're redirecting them outward so Mm -hmm. that you start to start to love your neighbor in this time where they're Mm -hmm. really in desperate Mm -hmm. need, right? Mm -hmm. They want rescue and the only true hope they have Mm -hmm. is, is the gospel of Christ. So I think that's, um, that's significant, and it leads kind of to the idea of I mm. think evangelism obviously mm-hmm. has been impacted, right? Sure. We can't go out and, and actually communicate mm-hmm. with our neighbor in person. So one of the ways we we can do that is through, uh, you know, communicating um, text, video, mm-hmm. um, writing letters. One member of our church mm-hmm. was sharing how she wrote letters to some of her closest oh, wow. friends mm-hmm. and and in- believers to encourage them, but also mm-hmm. unbelievers to. To challenge them, and yeah. I think that's a great example of of one way we can be bold mm-hmm. with the truth of the gospel in in this time where we are isolated, we're mm-hmm. locked down. Um, and then I I think just in terms of the spiritual growth that you mentioned, the church mm-hmm. um, being crucial to our spiritual growth, mm-hmm. right? It's a critical component of our growing up in in Christ and. And we emphasize that a lot—the mm. not forsaking the gathering together, mm. as mm. some were in the habit of doing, as Hebrews mm. ten mentioned. So, how do we deal with that now, where we mm. can't gather together? Mm. It's—I uh, for one—I don't think the government is persecuting the church, right? I yeah. think the government is fully within yeah. their rights to mm-hmm. to um, protect mm-hmm. the the safety, mm-hmm. health, yeah, and um, you know, of our of our nation and. Uh, and so this isn't persecution in my opinion now. Because it's the it,
1: same for all religions, right? I mean, it's not just yeah, the church right. that they things you can't meet. It's all religions. All don't assemblies of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, at this point, um, and really uh, some have reduced that even further, mm-hmm. but I think the, so I think you, you have to take that into account and, and honor yeah. the authorities that God mm-hmm. himself has put in place. Mm-hmm. Right. God is actually working out his will mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether we, we like it or not, it, mm-hmm. it is having a hindrance upon mm-hmm. our sure. ability yeah. to gather together. Um, and, and that should feel like a loss. Mm-hmm. I've, I've talked about this before, but we should lament that. Yeah. Lament is a good thing mm-hmm. for the church to experience. And in, and it's it, you have plenty of Psalms that you can turn mm-hmm. to where David is lamenting uh, his isolation, mm-hmm. his loneliness, his, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that he's fleeing from persecution. And, mm. and, um, and so we can relate to some of those emotions and experiences mm. and we can lament, we yeah. can miss and mourn, uh, the gathering together mm. that, that we can't enjoy right now. Yeah. And I think also it allows us to focus on components that maybe we've neglected in the past mm-hmm. where we've overemphasized. We, you know, we, I, I, I go to church on Sunday and mm. then you know, Tuesday, yeah. Monday through Saturday, it's, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I'm just doing my own thing sure. and I, I go to work and I'm, I'm distracted mm-hmm. and the Bible stays where it was, mm-hmm. where it was left after church. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so I think you, you want to cultivate a, a habit and a routine of once again, opening God's word, spending time in prayer, mm-hmm. you know, it's these ordinary means of grace mm-hmm. that, that we talk about so often that. Word sacrament and prayer again. Yeah. I said sacrament. Sacraments mm-hmm. are something that we lament mm-hmm. that we can't enjoy right now. I mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of of at home communion as some churches and sure. did. You know, mm-hmm. last night was Monday Thursday. A lot of yeah. people were doing mm-hmm. uh, communion services, mm-hmm. and they continued to do them from home. I I, I think that's a misunderstanding. Yeah. Of, and you had a video about that too. Yeah, yeah of the Lord's awful. supper. Yeah. So. um you know, I I want to emphasize how important the yeah. Lord's Supper is, but I want to do it in a way that's proper, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And and it maintains the the symbolism that is mm-hmm. that is conveyed, yeah, by that sign and seal. Yeah. Um, so, but you can worship, mm-hmm. you can truly worship. You can't do corporate worship. Mm-hmm. You can't do um, you know, the full. You can't receive. I think what is what is. Meant by the full benefits of corporate worship, you're not going to be able to listen to the, all of the saints mm-hmm. um, joining together in singing and uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one mm-hmm. another. Sure. Uh, we we can't participate in the sacraments. We um, our prayers are limited, right? Mm-hmm. We we can we can hear a video prayer or mm-hmm. even read a a text of a prayer, mm-hmm. which um, which are going to be beneficial. But Mm -hmm. again, there's something different about being isolated and Mm -hmm. separated from one another in our homes that we should feel a loss. Um, and so we, we still though gather together as families. Um, I've, I've been encouraged that I know some families have, have really enjoyed this time Mm -hmm. as their, you know, uh, husbands and dads are, are leading them in worship Mm -hmm. and they're able to, uh, practice something that maybe was neglected or mm-hmm. not or not as um routine mm-hmm. as it has become
1: yeah now that yeah
0: now that that's the only
1: way yeah. that they're. i mean i can definitely say that i think this situation has kind of forced me as well to step up a little bit more as a yeah. spiritual leader in the family as opposed to before i would just just kind of uh yeah uh, lean on you to be our <laughs> spiritual leader of the family and feed us but now we have to like force feed ourselves a little bit and right. you know. Um, take on more leadership so in, in that way i think it has helped me like wake up a little bit you know yeah so i can definitely agree to that
0: yeah. well i i appreciate you saying that it's, <laughs> it, it's encouraging to me to hear that as much as i want to get back together yeah, in person um i think there the lord is doing something through this mm-hmm. in our homes and uh and and he's going to work it out for for our good yeah. in that way
1: yeah and like you said like the longing part i I do feel like we, and I'm sure all the other members too would agree that they, we have, we. I think we learn a, a greater appreciation for our gatherings mm. now that we don't have it anymore. Like, And when we would take it for granted in the past, now you're like, you know, yeah, we really do miss that. And yeah. it, it is important and we, we appreciate that more. And I'm sure the, the joy that the first time we get back together to worship is going to be definitely different from it's going what to be celebratory to be. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, going to be so. exciting mm-hmm. well i'm grateful Never For your opinion. time, I no.
0: I, I, I assume you don't have any anything else, any more insight and wisdom to no. share with us. I, I don't know like, if I, I know shared any wisdom today. <laughs> it, no, but um, we have to somehow <laughs> let people get back to their day. But, anyways, I, I really appreciated it. I, I've um, I've enjoyed following you on on Facebook and the, your updates on this uh, oh, from the you. start, and yeah. it, it was helpful in forming my own kind of response i think so uh, i appreciate that yeah so thank you for for all you do
1: oh yeah well thank you thanks for letting me try this out this is this is fun i i enjoyed it good i was very nervous at first but i think it was pretty good (laughs) well i i think you did great so thank you and we will um uh, i'll talk to you soon all right thanks (laughs)